Welcome to the audio commentary for The Curse of Frankenstein. My name is Marcus Hearn and I'm the author of numerous books about Hammer films, including The Art of Hammer and The Hammer Vault. I'm pleased to say that over the course of the next 80 minutes I'll be joined by Jonathan Rigby, an author whose acclaimed books on the history of horror films include English Gothic and Studies in Terror. Hello. Now, Jonathan, it wasn't until I saw this film on DVD for the first time that I realised there was smoke billowing in the red background of these titles. I mean, it wasn't at all apparent in the version we used to see on television or the VHS release. Well, the version we saw on television wasn't very good quality, and yes, it just looked like a blood-red background, didn't it? And then one realised that there were kind of hellish plumes of smoke behind these red titles, which, um, which is a lovely touch, I think. It's very simple. Very straightforward, gothic script, what could be more appropriate, and Mephistophelian flames, as it were, behind, behind the lettering. I think it's remarkable that the team responsible for the classic Hammer horrors fell into place almost immediately. This, this title sequence is a roll call of Hammer's greatest talents. I mean, from Peter Cushing to Christopher Lee, through to screenwriter Jimmy Sangster, composer James Bernard, yep. director of photography Jack Asher, production designer Bernard Robinson, producer Anthony Hines, and of course, uh, director, director Terence Fisher. Right. I know, well, they were all kind of assembled here in, in one go, weren't they? And they had a good, good five years together subsequent to this, turning out classic Gothic horrors that I'm sure to their great surprise, because they just looked upon themselves as artisans working away uh, near Windsor, to their great surprise, I dare say, we're still watching and appreciating today. This opening match shot with the uh, priest approaching the prison seems slightly to me like a very small tribute to the beginning of the Universal Dracula, which starts with a very similar match shot of Harker's coach approaching Castle Dracula in the distance. Well, we see here the priest approaching the entrance to the mountain mm. prison, but in reality it's the courtyard entrance to uh, Bray Studios, the main house at Bray Studios. And yeah. Hammer were already adept at disguising various parts of the Bray exterior, as well as filming in rooms inside the house. Uh, they took over Down Place in, was it January 1951? Yes, that's right. And this is November 1956. Yes. So they'd had well over five years yes. of uh, sort of getting used to the place. And yes, you're absolutely right, the, particularly Bernard Robinson's genius at disguising familiar locations and familiar bits of the studio was, uh, was already well in evidence. This is Michael Mulcaster as the oh, prison yes. warder. <laughs> Who turned up in several other Hammer films, didn't he? Well, he did, yes. He's in Hound of the Baskervilles, he's in The Brides of Dracula, he's in... The uh, Revenge of Frankenstein. Of course, as one of the patients. With in a the, tattoo on his the arm. The poor hospital. However, yes. we're getting ahead of ourselves because that's the second chapter in the history of the Baron. <laughs> but nevertheless, Michael well, Mulcaster sequel, yeah. was a Hammer regular. And he the was. priest, Alex Gallia, in a lovely moment of continuity, He's the same actor who appears as the priest at the beginning of The Revenge of Frankenstein. That's which right, yes. continues That's directly right. on from this. That's Although, right. sadly, he's not credited in The Revenge of Frankenstein, as he is credited here. Seems That's a bit true. unfair, but there it That's is. That's true. Um, also, as well as The Revenge of Frankenstein, he's in a short film called A Man on the Beach. Oh, of course he was, yes. Uh, as the casino manager, as far as I remember. Now, this film is significant because it was the first screenplay that uh, Jimmy Sangster ever wrote. That's right. That's right. And led on to his first feature screenplay, X the Unknown. Yes. Which led on to this. Yes. So this film comes from science fiction as well as gothic horror, doesn't it? I think in that respect. It does. In fact, 
One of the original reviews of this film, Philip Oakes in the Evening Standard on the 2nd of May, 1957, he led off by saying Frankenstein is the Model T classic of science fiction. And uh, the interesting thing, of course, is that now, 50-odd years later, we can see this film version of Frankenstein as the Model T classic of British horror cinema. I mean, it is an extraordinarily seminal film. A tiny film made for £65,000 in a small studio is, in fact, one of the most influential British films ever made. Absolutely. It revived the horror genre on a worldwide scale, and uh, we're still seeing that now. And here is the star. Here is Peter Cushing's first appearance in a Hammer film. Indeed, Peter Cushing's first appearance in a horror film. Although, of course, not he was... Not a horror role. Not a horror role, because he was well-known to audiences at the time for his appearance in the BBC's adaptation of 1984, which, which was widely referred to as a horror play when it was That's first right. broadcast in 1954. The original reviews of this film um, referred to him, one or two of them referred to him as a master of sinister horror. And yet this was his first horror film, so that shows what an impact 1984 Little made. did they know what was to come. Little did they know. <laughs> uh, one interesting thing about this opening scene is it's quite brave because it presents Frankenstein in very reduced circumstances because he's going to be such a Byronic Machiavellian dandy and yet here he's first seen lying amid straw and in fact he makes a movement to introduce himself which is awfully similar to a movement the creature makes much later in the film when the creature too is lying among straw um, so they introduce the Baron at a very low ebb and then sort of have to jack him up again as the kind of dandified villain we're going to become familiar with but it works, but I believe this is one of the few legacies, this flashback structure from a prison cell was one of the few legacies of the origin of this project. Well, yes. I mean, this, this film was, was very loosely based on a script that was actually written by Hammer's arch-rival Milton Sabotsky. He was to become Hammer's arch-rival later. Yes, yes, possibly, as a result of this, actually. Yes. I think he had something of a chip on his shoulder did, as a result yes. of it. But he wrote a script called Frankenstein and the Monster, Great which title. Hammer spent the first... <laughs> well, indeed, yes. <laughs> which Hammer spent the first part of 1956 working on before Jimmy Sankster... Well, I say rewrote it. Jimmy Sankster's work inherits um, very little. He scratch, really, did Very little. It inherits the flashback. Um, now, on the left of the screen, we can see Hammer's young Frankenstein, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is, is Melvin Hayes playing the 15-year-old Victor Frankenstein That's following right. the funeral of his mother. Now, Melvin was nearly 22 when he made this film, but, and it would be a great pub quiz question, wouldn't it? Who was the first actor to play Frankenstein for Hammer Films? Uh, yes, there yes, he is. that's right. And he was later to become famous as Gloria <laughs> in Indeed. the um, 70s sitcom It Ain't Half Hot. Man. That's right, that's right. Now, he did make one other film for Hammer many years later. He's in um, Hammer's adaptation of Man About the House. Oh. Improbably. Well, well, he would be. <laughs> we ought in 1974. We ought to point out that the little redhead girl uh, who's standing right there with Auntie... The auntie is Noel Hood. The little red-haired girl is actually Hazel Court's own daughter. Yes. Sally Walsh. Sally Walsh, who was six years old. Who was six years old. And Hazel Court will turn up later as the older Elizabeth. Mm. And she was the daughter of Hazel Court and Dermot Walsh. Dermot Walsh. Of course. And here comes Paul Kremper wearing quite the tallest top hat I think I've ever seen. That's right. They're doing their best to make Robert Urquhart look as cherubic and youthful as they can at this point because, of course, he has to age along with this tiny Frankenstein despite the fact that he was nine years younger than Peter Cushing. Was he really? <laughs> he was born in 1922 
And so that presented a bit of a problem. I think, you see, Sangster's original scheme was to have a very young Frankenstein, I think. They providentially got hold of Cushing, and they couldn't possibly re refuse him because he was such a big television star, but Cushing was 43. I have the impression that Sangster wanted a young Frankenstein, and, of course, when Sangster in 1970 made a misbegotten remake of this film called The Horror of Frankenstein, that's exactly what Sangster went for, Ralph Bates, well, who was fact, a conspicuously yes, young Yes, you're absolutely right. If, you, if one uh, examines Sangster's notes from the early drafts of this film, I seem to remember that he does refer to Frankenstein being a 10-year-old. At this point, rather than 15. As rather than 15, yes, yes. absolutely. Um, so really, compounded by the fact that they cast a man, quite noticeably Cushing's junior, as his mm. tutor and mentor, mm. there's obviously a big effort here from the makeup department, headed by Phil Leakey, to make Robert Herkett look quite, quite fresh-faced. Later, of course, they put a beard on him as a kind of, you know, the, the standard, let's make this man look older. Now, Timmy Sangster wastes no time at all with this montage. Uh, it shows how the tutor and his pupil eventually become collaborators. And yes. we're, only, we're only nine minutes into the film, and we're already on the verge of... Well, Victor there's no, no messing about, isn't it? No. Yeah, first experiment to resurrect the dead is about to begin. And here it is. With a charming little model of Bernard Robinson's set. Heath Robinson-type sets. Yes. Uh, that's right, and... Uh, Cushing with a somewhat different hairstyle to indicate that he's still relatively young, not the kind of Machiavelli becomes slightly later. And yes, here he, he is, and here he is right here, now. He? Yes. yes, here he is right now. Yes, with the white gloves and uh, the Wimshurst generator in the background, which was to become a kind of totem of the Hammer mm. Frankenstein films. Uh, and we're also dealing with the revival of a dog. The dog was called Frankie. Well, yeah, eventually. Eventually. Frankie, yes. yes, eventually it was yes. called Frankie because yes. Robert Urquhart actually um, took the dog away with him, didn't he? Well, there's, there's a story attached to this dog. Yes. There's a story attached to this dog. <laughs> I mean, uh, Eastman Colour was obviously one of the most important innovations in this film. Yes. And five days before filming began, the director, Terence Fisher, conducted some colour tests and uh, as a result fired the original dog. <laughs> really? because Because the dog... <laughs> The dog was black and white, and, yes. um, and so Fisher argued that this was a colour film, we must have a more colourful dog. And so he fired the original dog and got the black and tan dog that we yes. see here yes. Yes. instead. Now, the original dog was adopted by Hammer's focus puller, Harry Oakes. <laughs> Where do you get this information from? <laughs> and, uh, and, and the replacement dog, which we see here, was taken home by Robert Urquhart, who, as, was, you, yes. as you said, named him Frankie. And he got several generations out of that dog. He did, right? yes, yes. And no, uh, I mean, Urquhart was not a great fan of this film, it has to be no, said, and we will discuss this we'll later discuss on. Later. But, but Urquhart later joked that the only reason he watched the film when it turned up on television yes. was to see his beloved Frankie as a puppy. Yes, yes, and somewhat waterlogged. Although something, something tells me that's a dummy at this stage. I would hope so. <laughs> I would hope so. And we're going to see Frankie proper in a minute. But um, the, what we have coming up here, actually, I think is a re really defining moment in Hammer Horror. It's the moment when I think we realise that Cushing is just ideally temperamentally suited to this kind of material. Uh, Fisher gives us a really huge close-up of Cushing listening to the revived heartbeat of the dog. And um, so we get the full gimlet blue eyes and the 
edge of mania quality that he was going to exploit so beautifully. Well, for another 20 years after this. Uh, and there's Frankie. There's Frankie. Frankie well, himself. Yes. And uh, very typical, masterful uh, gesture from Cushing there, stopping Kremper from actually intervening and touching the dog before he's done all the suitable preparations. And here's the shot I was here's referring the shot, to. Yes. I mean, he plays Frankenstein almost like a spoiled child, doesn't he? In places. He does. In fact, he, he says more than once to Kremper later on, it's all your fault. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Relating yes. to the brain injury that we'll come to later. He takes he, absolutely no responsibility for his actions at all. Absolutely, and he is indeed like a spoilt brat, really, which um, again substantiates the idea that Sangster originally wanted uh, a more a youthful, obviously youthful, Baron. Uh, although at this distance, none of us would um, exchange Peter Cushing for anyone else, because of course he made the part his own to such a remarkable degree. And one of the other interesting things about the scene we've just seen is uh, is is the, the dialogue where uh, the Baron says. Paul, it's alive. Yes, well, of course, it's alive was a very generic phrase by now because it had been famously uttered by Colin Clive in the original Universal Frankenstein 1931. Using the diction of an earlier period, he tended to say, it's alive, but uh, nevertheless, it was a classic line. And, of course, Cushing had loved that film and had, in fact, seen in the trades the advertisements for the fact that Hammer were doing this new version of Frankenstein and had actually gone to them by all accounts, which was rather thrilling for them because they had been trying to get him for previous projects already without success. Well, that's right, yes. I mean, he remembered that, um, he, as you said, he, he read that they were going to make Frankenstein in colour and he'd, he'd seen the James Whale version and loved it and admired Colin Clive a lot. Yes. And so he asked his agent, as you said, yeah. He, as he said to his agent, I have some spare time, there's something I'd like to do. Are Hammer interested in my services? Well, of course, one of the reasons, another of the reasons he admired Colin Clive so much is because Colin Clive had originated the role of stand-up in Journey's End, which was Cushing's favourite play. And Cushing was always sorry never to have been in it himself. And, of course, Journey's End was directed in 1929 by James Whale in London's West End, and James Whale took Colin Clive with him to Hollywood, and they made Frankenstein. So there's all curious interconnections here. This particular scene is a, is a kind of classic scene with some rather good Sangster dialogue where he basically starts to rehearse some of the scientific dilemmas involved in what the Baron is undertaking and um, the Frankenstein himself has some really quite quite pregnant dialogue we hold in the palms of our hands such secrets as have never been dreamed of nature puts up her own barriers to confine the scope of man we've broken through those barriers there's nothing to stop us now but this is, uh, crucially, where the conflict begins to emerge between yes. Paul and Victor for the first time, because yes. Paul wants to use their discovery to transform existing surgical procedures and save hundreds of lives, but Victor is already dissatisfied with bringing the dead back to life and is now talking about building a new Building a life. whole new man, which to Kremper is, an, is a horrifying... An abomination, yes. yes. And but Frankenstein <laughs> talks about creating a man with the hands of an artist and the matured brain of a genius, which is, is, is an ambition that he would revisit in the final film in the series. Absolutely, but it goes wrong later. every time. Every time, <laughs> yes. You'll you never want, learn. If you want to look at this scene in, in a symbolic way, you could look upon Frankenstein embarking on his grand experiment and using the very, very um, interesting line, there's nothing to stop us now, as a kind of sort of analogue to Hammer, 
reviving the British horror film, more or less, in point of fact, creating the British horror film as we know it. Yes, of course. And um, embarking on a grand experiment. There's nothing to stop us now. I understand this scene with the gibbet was the first scene filmed. It was the very first scene filmed on the 19th of November, 1956. Which was a Monday. And it, was it a Monday? Yes, okay. and it appears to be shot, and this was to become very rare in Hammer films, it appears to be shot in actual darkness or something approximate. Absolutely, yes, because later on, of course, we would be used to seeing scenes like this shot uh, day for night, as and it were, with a filter over the lens. Not but this always is convincingly. Shot. Not always convincingly, This, no. however... Yeah. Now, I think there's some dodgy thinking in the Baron's plan from the outset. I mean, he and Paul go to Ingolstein to steal the body of a hanged highwayman. Ingolstadt. Sorry to be pedantic. It's Ingolstadt. Ingolstadt. Engel, Ingolstadt, I think. Okay. Not Stein. <laughs> but Frankenstein states that the man was hanged last week, right. which means it's been hanging there for days. I mean, it must be decomposing already, mustn't it, Victor? Well, as Paul very helpfully tells us later, the birds haven't wasted any time. <laughs> No. <laughs> Half the head's eaten away. And well, what you're saying is the Baron should have foreseen this. <laughs> well, exactly, yes. I mean, he's got to be ponging a bit already, isn't he? <laughs> um, yeah, in, in, in Sangster's original script, um, the corpse, quote, danced around wildly as Frankenstein tried to cut the rope holding it up. And the British Board of Film Censors, uh, who read the script prior to production, I mean, insisted that neither this nor any close ups of the body should be seen. Well, the camera tracks in very rapidly there, so we get only the briefest oh, yes. glimpse of the bird-pecked head. Yes. This, I think... I mean, I think audiences in 1957 who'd read all the scandalised reviews that came out about this film, they probably watched the film up to this point, the first 15 minutes or so, and you've got, you've got Melvin Hayes... Um, as the young Frankenstein, you've got a dog being revived. No, nothing worse than that has happened so far, and it's quite a standard costume British film of the period. This scene, when James Bernard's music suddenly takes a doom-laden turn. In fact, one of the reviews referred to the fact that James Bernard's music stirs up the very mud oh, of yes. apprehension, which is That's a great it. phrase. Which, of course, um, is what he'd literally done in Ex the Unknown. Yes, with uh, <laughs> radioactive mud. But mud look, monster. here we are, cu uh, Cushing casually unthinkingly wipes his lapel with blood. With blood He's yeah. just quite insouciantly cut off a head. Not in full view, but to 50s audiences. Well, in Sangster's original script, we would have seen a brief shot of the mutilated head, but the BBFC told Hammer this was unacceptable. But, um, of course, Sangster put in those super horrible details so as to get the slightly less horrible details through, didn't he? Cause the BBFC well, will be I mean, distracted was, by the really yes. horrible ones. Well, I mean, we are being distracted here, actually, by, by, a, cutaway. by a cutaway shot. Um, and, I mean, I wonder if this shot of, uh, of Kremper looking disgusted was there to cover the shot of the head going in the acid. I mean, I mind you, uh, the, BBC, <laughs> the BBFC also said that Kremper's dialogue about the birds and half the head being eaten away should, all, eaten away should also be toned down. And, but, but it was I think, I think that remained the same. So, I mean, so who knows what was actually going on here, but... Um, but yeah, Robert Urquhart's eye line in that cutaway shot Doesn't does not match. look great Quite apart at all. from the fact that he's actually in the other room. He's in the other room. <laughs> and there is, of course, a well-known publicity still um, from the scene we've just seen, showing Frankenstein dropping the head into the acid. There is. I uh, think, in many ways, the British Board of Film Censors did hammer a favour in some cases because the head itself, preserved in shots that we've seen, does not look good. It doesn't look good. And no, it no. could have compromised hmm. the film no. had we had a proper look at it. Yes. 
And we get a proper look at the headless corpse here, which kind, of, which kind <coughs> yeah. of made the BBFC very happy. The assistant director of this film was Derek Whitehurst, and oh, he yes. remembered filming a close-up of the wax head going into the acid, but this was certainly never seen in the British print of the film, although it was possibly included in other versions. I mean, the footage from the extended Japanese version of Dracula turned up in 2011, so who knows, maybe an alternative version of this scene still exists somewhere. We could see that sizzling noggin going <laughs> into the acid. Well, I'm not holding my breath for it. I, I'm quite happy with the film. And as you said, it possibly wouldn't be such a good thing after no. all. Now, here is the 23-year-old Valerie Gaunt. Valerie Gaunt. As the maid, Justine. Who has become a who's become a very big figure in the history of gothic horror from appearing in just two films? Yes, this, but what, what films? But what, what films? films? This and Dracula, in which um, she sported the first vampire fangs ever seen in <clears throat> a mainstream English language film. Now the maid is obviously Swiss, but she's the only person in the house with a French accent, uh, yes. and I think a, a lot of English actresses. Uh, this period adopted a continental accent, didn't they? I mean, possibly this was the influence of Bridget Bardot. They did. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, though, does it? Since everybody else is speaking well, exactly. perfect received pronunciation. Yes. And here and is Hazel, Hazel Court. <laughs> well, Hazel Court, yes. <coughs> Hazel Court as the grown-up Elizabeth. Who was 30 at the time of filming. Sutton Coldfield she was born in, wasn't Absolutely, she? In 1926. Yes. And she'd been a Gainsborough starlet in the 40s, I believe. She's one of many links between Gainsborough and Hammer films, in point of fact. Well, there are many links on this film in particular, aren't there? Yes. I mean, for example, the stills photographer, uh, John Jay, on this film once described uh, Hazel as one of his favourite subjects from his days at Gainsborough. Ah, yes. uh, and Terence Fisher had been at Gainsborough. And, and been an editor, of course, at Gainsborough. Absolutely, yes. and, and Jack Asher. In fact, Terence yes. Fisher and Jack Asher had worked together at Gainsborough. Hazel Court looks very lovely in this film, but it has to be said, um, Sangster had yet to work out how to write worthwhile female roles. Well, I yes, I think Justine and Elizabeth are not terribly three-dimensional. They're functional. In this film. And it, I think Sangster was kind of stung by the criticism of that. He was spent much of the next decade compensating it for, for compensating for Suspense it, thrillers were always focused on women, weren't they? Yeah, uh, yeah yes. victimised women, yeah, dominate his work, I think, from the 60s onwards. But yes. uh, the, the, at this, uh, this period, Elizabeth seems, well, I think both Elizabeth and Justine seem staggeringly dumb. I well, think, they're purely functional characters, and, and they're only there because of their connection to the male leads. Now, look at the jars of brightly coloured liquid on the right of the screen absolutely, here. Absolutely. It's a, it's a tribute to Terence Fisher and Jack Asher that almost every frame of this film is beautifully composed. And beautiful to look at, yes. Now, Frankenstein has stolen the hands of a dead sculptor, and the BBFC insisted that there should be no shot of the amputated hands, but this was... Uh, this was obviously one particular battle that the producer, Tony Hines, won. Clearly, because we're about to see them. And we've just you... seen them. We've just seen them. Oh, I, we've just seen them, and they had a seam down the side, <laughs> if you look <laughs> yes. closely. But, uh, yeah. Actually, Jack Asher did say that The Curse of Frankenstein was a tryout, a debut of my ideas for photographing colour. In retrospect, just to realise that it works so well is really great. And he went on to say that Dracula was really the sort of apotheosis of this, that the things he tried out on this film were perfected in Dracula. And I think we would point out that they were perfected even further in The Brides of Dracula. Oh, yes, which but, is an uh, incandescent film. Absolutely. But uh, even at this stage, uh, 
I think the critics, the, I think one of the things that bamboozled the critics was that they were watching a deeply ugly film in theme and presentation, but that it was actually given to them, photographed in particular, with such beauty. An ugly story rendered beautifully. I think it confused people. It was obviously a very well-made film, and I don't think by this stage people were used to horror films being well-made. That, that, that time was long ago, really. Go back to before World War II for that. We've just seen the first appearance of the famous Cushing Finger, which he holds aloft. <clears throat> the Cushing Finger held aloft. That was another totemic thing. That was, <laughs> yes. Let's face it, that was an affectation, but, you know, we love Cushing's affectation. Oh, we loved it, yes. <clears throat> Absolutely. When he points out to, uh, to Krimper, you'll be as famous as I will. <laughs> Entirely insincerely. <laughs> this time, well, this time, however, of course, Crimper has utterly changed his mind about helping the Baron and says that he now says he's going to persuade Elizabeth to leave. Um, well, in an it's not clear actually whether Crimper actually fancies Elizabeth. It's um, it is there is the implication at the end that he actually goes he does, off with her. He just put an arm around her at the end. That but, they're a um, couple by the end, and mm. part of his motivation for betraying the Baron is to um, get him out of the picture altogether. It's all left rather ambiguous, which I think is a good thing. I mean, you're left with question marks. Um, you were telling me earlier that Robert Urquhart, uh, possibly in a gesture towards method acting, actually followed the same trajectory as his character in this film as regards initially being enthusiastic <laughs> and then subsequently <laughs> thinking, oh, I'm not sure I should have done that. I'm not sure I should be involved in this, just as Kremper. Well, does. absolutely. I mean, he had, he had a change of heart, uh, which... Um, Hazel Court remembered actually uh, occurred during the premiere because he arrived at the premiere apparently wearing a high collar jacket and a pair of dark glasses and then once the film started playing he realised exactly what he'd got himself into and actually walked out halfway through. Walked out of the premiere? Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then he got into trouble with Hammer shortly after the film came out because um, he was apparently so disgusted by the film Yes. That um, he later gave an interview to a journalist where he was he was critical of what he considered to be the the prurient bestial yes. nature of the film, and as a result, got a very stiff letter from the executive producer Michael Carreras, who That's told right. him that this sort of publicity could be very damaging to Hammer, and uh, Urquhart considered that as a result he was blacklisted by Hammer, and in fact he didn't work for them again until 1980, when he, he turned up in the series Hammer House of Horror. Which, By which time Michael Carreras had gone. Well, yeah, coincidentally <laughs> or not, this yes. was the first post-Carreras production. But even in 1994, in an interview, he was still saying, I must say, I think it's quite well made. It's very competent, and given that it had a sensational element to it, I'm not surprised it was such a success. I liked the whole experience, it was all good fun, but I was horrified when I saw what it did, how an audience took it, or could take it. I know that 99% of people won't be affected in the slightest, but I feel there's a kind of moral responsibility to ensure not one person is. But I'm not preaching, you know. <laughs> well, he, was, he wasn't preaching. That, that's did you read the script, Robert? Yes, I know. Well, of course, reading a script and seeing the final product is uh, two very different things. Possibly, but I would venture that the script he read was probably even stronger than the one he actually participated in. True. But, but bless him, he's very good in the film. He's very, he very good very, indeed. He is very good in the film. And um, Now, Elizabeth, Elizabeth has just told Paul oh, that, yes. that she's going to marry Victor, but meanwhile, Straight upstairs... Yes. yes. This shows a, a side of the Baron that was actually going to be expunged, more or less, in the remainder of the series. In Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, in 1969, he rapes 
the heroine in yes. a very controversial scene. But this is the only scene in which he actually shows any form of lust for anything other than scientific knowledge. Well, he's such a narcissist, isn't he? I mean, as, as we can see in this scene. Well, I mean, he because... actually is making love to this woman in an entirely narcissistic way. Yes, and yeah. he insists that she calls him Herr Baron, yeah. not Victor. <laughs> yes. I mean, good, haven't for I goodness told you before? Sake. Yes, and uh, he's a very chilly character even when... Um, uh, when he's got the smouldering Valerie Gaunt in his arms, well, it's, indeed, it's, yes. it's all it all adds it all adds in fact to the profoundly chilling nature of this man who clearly is a sociopath of quite an advanced kind. Now, the, the BBFC's uncompromising attitude towards this film was not restricted to its horror content. They ah. described this scene as quote unpleasant in the circumstances of this story unquote and said that it should be discreetly indicated. In particular, they stressed that Justine should not kiss Victor with an open mouth. Oh. Well, I think they, they followed that one. There are no open mouths yes, in, that, indeed. Yes. in that scene. It's all very closed and chaste to a degree. This is, um, I suppose this is one of the centrepieces of Bernard Robinson's sets, really, isn't it? The kind of... Great Hall. It's not that great a hall, actually. It is actually quite small. <laughs> the Great Hall of Frankenstein's Swiss yes. domicile. Yes. Um, Bernard Robinson was one of the um, one of the great features of these early Hammer horror films. He was. He's the man who he made was. He was very small films to look the lavish. He was. Yes. According to Anthony Nelson Keyes, he could make something out of nothing. This is one of the most chilling lines in the whole film, isn't it? Oh, it is. When he chucks... Yes. chucks clucks her under the chin, yes, saying, he, he, maybe one day you will. Yes. I mean, what on earth does he mean by that? Well, he actually, again, says um, later to Kremper, doesn't he, that um, she can become involved in his experiments later. Yes, but... Uh, and there's something deeply horrible about the way he caresses her chin and says, maybe yes. you will be involved one day. I mean, maybe we find out in Frankenstein of the Monster from Hell, but oh, the I Baron do. plans to reproduce an unblemished version of his creature by mating it. Anyway, I think we're lucky that scene got past the BBFC. Really? They complained about that, do you? Well, they didn't, but I think we're lucky. Oh, we're lucky I just don't think they realised the subtext. No, no, no. Well, it, hmm. here we go. Now, here we go. We start to accumulate all the bits and pieces. Again, I think 1950s audiences, and particularly 1950s critics, are beginning to gag slightly at this stage. <laughs> There's, there is a canard among uh, Hammer historians out there that this voice of the Charnel House proprietor is Patrick Troughton. Well, not among these historians, because it doesn't because sound it's not anything Patrick like Troughton him. at all. He does make his way onto certain cast lists, doesn't he? He was contracted to appear in the film, yes. But that's not his voice. And... As well as Patrick Troughton, another thing that didn't make it into the film, into many versions of the film, was that big close-up of a goat's eye we've just had, which upset the BBFC. And I understand this is the first home version of this film that has included that shot. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's Normally, never been seen on video or DVD before. That's right. Normally it cuts straight to the, what is another iconic shot, of Cushing looking through the... Looking through the uh, glass at it and of course he was to repeat that shot in various different forms well it was a trademark wasn't it yes. and of course right at the end of his career he spoofed it in a film called top secret he didn't did he? that's right where yes. he removes the uh, he removes the magnifying glass to <laughs> reveal right. he actually, he actually his has eye a huge, is that big <laughs> huge eye underneath <laughs> yes. god bless him 
Now, Frankenstein's laboratory, which we're in now, was not filmed within the main house uh, at Bray Studios. It was shot in on one of the stages, one of only two stages that Hammer had at that point in the grounds of the house. Yes. Uh, a stage which they referred to at the time as the new stage. They, in fact, uh, did a big extension of Bray, didn't they, soon after this film? Oh, in did, time because, for Dracula. Well, there was an influx of American money. Yes, I mean, and this, this film was made with um, partly American money, which, of course, is what made the, uh, the casting of Peter Cushing slightly problematic for James Carreras, the managing director. Yes, because he'd been instructed that they wanted no trace of an English accent. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, of course, they went exactly the other way. Rather than having Brian and Levy, whom they'd had in the Quatermass films, they went for as English a cast as they could get. Absolutely, which is to their credit, I think. I think many, many uh, English film producers these days are still not as brave as that. I think what it was is that uh, there's the well-known antipathy of Universal to this film because they had a copyright on the Frankenstein makeup that had been made by Jack Pierce for Karloff, and... Anthony Hines, the producer, is on record as saying he was delighted when Universal sort of began to make noises because he thought, this is great, we can now strike out on our own and make an entirely new, utterly original version, which is exactly what they did. And it yes. was also a distinctly British yes. version, hence the actors. Yes, but it did cause them problems. I mean, this was, yes. this was part of the reason that Milton Sobotsky's script... Frankenstein of the Monster was rejected. Although I suspect that may have been an excuse because I think it would have played as rather a sort of drive-in B-movie and, yes. and didn't have the restraint that Heinz felt that Hammer Horror should have, I think. But also it had scenes that were apparently directly inspired by uh, The Bride of Frankenstein, which would have been unacceptable. Including a kind of mock crucifixion for the Indeed, that was, one of the, that was one of the principal problems. Well, it doesn't yes. get more Bride of Frankenstein than that, does it? Indeed, yes. Here we find an actor called Paul Hartmut. I hope I have pronounced that correctly, though I'm not entirely sure. Um, who, uh, even more noticeably than Justine, who has a kind of French accent, uh, this Professor Bernstein character has a very heavy Teutonic accent. Um, one rather wonders why. Well, the actor was German. I mean, we have to... Well, know. yes, but given that the milieu is apparently Swiss... Nevertheless, all the actors are British and sound British, and then suddenly you drop in a German. Well, one of them is Swiss French. And you wonder French, where he came from. And one of them is Swiss German. It's, it's feasible. But he's, 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 well, playing, he's, okay. he's playing the character as, as, as Sigmund Freud, rather. Um, he is, again, we're, this is a big scene for rehearsing the scientific dilemma. In, in, a, in a decade in which horror films up to this point had been very much preoccupied with nuclear science in that tarantulas and God knows what oh, else yes. were horrifyingly yes. enlarged by radioactive yes. tests. Yes. Here, Professor Bernstein actually spells it out. Is the world ready for the discoveries that scientists make? Mm. And are scientists ready for it? Because, of course, they get bored so easily and then just mm. drop it. And everybody else is left to pick up the pieces. It's very much a dialogue from the sort of new nuclear age of this post-war period. And yet, of course, it's set in 19th century Switzerland. It's very effective, I think. And the professor should know about all this, of course, because he is, in fact, the greatest brain in Europe. According to, <coughs> according to Elizabeth, I think. Yes. And we can see Frankenstein eyeing that brain. <laughs> hungrily. Hungrily, yes, I within the professor's head. Absolutely. 
I think this is one of Hazel Court's most remarkable costumes with what was to become another feature of Hammer Horror, of course, a lot of decolletage on view. And I think we, could, we should give a shout-out, shouldn't we, to... Uh, I, pres I think it was Bermans and Nathans, wasn't it? The famous London costumiers whom Hammer patronised for all these luscious Gothic horrors. Well, indeed, the wardrobe mistress on this film was Molly Arbuthnot, who, was, right. with, who was with Hammer from 1953 through to 1966 when they left Bray Studios. Now, I can't say this definitively, but I believe that some of the costumes that Hammer used were, in fact, authentic. I mean, you know, after all, this film was made in 1956. Yes. Uh, which wasn't that far away from the from the 19th century was it i suppose in comparison to well, now in comparison to now but comparison um, to now but some of the some of the costumes i believe were authentic but i can't state definitively whether any of the ones we're looking at now were but i'm i'm thinking that since this film was still made on a very low budget none of these costumes were made Possibly correct, yes. Possibly correct. They went to Berman's and Nathan's, didn't they? Possibly. For some very Possibly. lovely costumes. Although there were, especially with the nightdresses, which we're going to see later, I would suspect yes. that some of those may have been at least tailored towards the ladies that... Um, they were made for wearing them. rear, for, um, for... Yes, we know why they were made, so that they could Indeed. be lit in such a way. Here's a very iconic scene. I oh yeah, I think we know already. Oh, what's we going know to what's happen. coming, don't we? It's Particularly terrible. when the music takes another of those oh, doom-laden yes. turns. Don't do it, Professor. Don't walk up the stairs. Don't and walk up Frankenstein. the stairs. It can only end unhappily. Yes, <laughs> it can only end with you taking a plunge. <laughs> <laughs> In, and um, it's 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 built up to you rather rather nicely. But we do know that something truly awful is going to happen. Well, we can see Frankenstein eyeing the drop. Can't That's we? right, already. <laughs> Um, absolutely, and he shows him what looks to me like a Rembrandt print, possibly, of one of the early operations, as Frankenstein puts it. And the strings come in, and uh, This is very impressive. I mean, the, the stuntman, uh, we don't know who it was, sadly, fell onto a soft mat which had been seamlessly integrated into the floor. Well, I mean... I say seamlessly, I mean, with today's technology, it might be more apparent what's going on. Yes. But hopefully audiences at the time, who only got to see the shot once and very quickly, yes. would not have no. realised that they he also, was actually falling onto a soft floor. They also wouldn't have realised that he was actually, looked to me, like a conspicuously taller man than the actor well, indeed. But Was it possibly it Jock Easton? No, it wasn't Jock Easton. Oh, it wasn't Jock uh, Easton. We, we see Jock Easton later. It was one of uh, Captain Jock Easton's stuntmen. Jock Easton was the stunt supervisor on this film, but that's not actually him in that shot. Yeah. This is a character, an actor, by the way, called Middleton Woods, playing a character called Lecturer, who's thanking the Baron for committing Bernstein to his own family vault. And the view of the vault that we see is not actually a complete set, but it, it's a matte painting. Oh, the, a very beautiful matte painting. A beautiful the, the, matte painting. The Swiss Alp at the back there is great. And yes. I, must, I must point out, these funeral clothes for Frankenstein and Elizabeth are quite gorgeous. Exquisite, yes. Now, this painting was by uh, Les Bowie. Was it? With a rather, rather sort of almost Charles Adams-like griffin attached to the oh, yes. <laughs> vault at the top yes. there. And the griffin was an emblem that Hammer preserved for the tickets for the premiere of this film. Really? Because ah, yes. um, the, the, the cast and crew were given tickets for the premiere, which is the same premiere that Robert Urquhart walked out on. <laughs> and um, and the, the Griffin is preserved on the front of the tickets as the Frankenstein family emblem. Oh, okay. Yes, it's, it's, it's not quite as impressive um, a, a painting as the previous one, I thought, the daylight one of the Alp. But um, 
it does it does it does sort of point forward to the Roger Corman Poe films for me in a funny yes. sort of way because it, yes. it's so elaborately grotesquely gothic in a way that isn't absolutely typical of Hammer mm. films actually. And I think Les Bowie was one of Hammer's unsung heroes insofar as yes. I think what what many audiences thought were sets, especially made sets, were actually his very fine paintings. This is a scene that's much more redolent of what people were to expect from Hammer horror: debraining an old man in a crypt oh god yeah <laughs> <laughs> with no remorse whatsoever yeah and the bbfc warned hammer that quote the shot of the dead bernstein in his coffin should not be too sustained or macabre ah. and there goes the professor's brain a sheep's brain possibly i believe so yes. we had a goat's eye now we've goat's got a sheep's, and brain. sheep's brain yes we only see the brain in repose sitting in the jar whereas in the next film they're going to go for broke and actually show a brain being slid into a jar with oh, blood yes. corpuscles floating up oh, yes. much nastier anyway this was quite nasty enough um for the time being this, of course, is Sangster capitulating to one of the distortions of the story that was introduced by the Universal version. Uh, he's capitulating to it in a way that Universal can't claim you're, you're, you know, you're using a feature of ours because in their version, Frankenstein accidentally used a criminal brain. In this version, he is forced through circumstance, through this little struggle, to use, uh, well, frankly, he's forced to create a brain-damaged yes. creature. Although goodness knows how the brain survived the fall from the top of the stairs anyway. Well, there's that too. But, but there's, there's a fantastic line in that scene, isn't there, where, where, where Kremper says, I can stop you using his brain. And Frankenstein says, why? He has no further use of it. <laughs> uh, variations on that kind of gallows humour were to come oh, yes. quite frequently in the subsequent films. This is a functional and, frankly, slightly boring scene, I think. Um, I guess, as I say, it's functional, it's necessary, it needs to be here. But um, slightly conventionally acted, I'm not sure how the actors could have played it other than conventionally, to be honest. Um, but it fills in, fills in time when what we really want to see is the continuation of the experiment, isn't it? Yes. And poor old Elizabeth, she's very slow on the uptake, isn't she? She is, rather. Um, but as, as we've already discussed, she's a functional character and uh, is there to be threatened at the end, I suppose. But, um, again, we have to ask ourselves, is Kremper conceiving more and more than merely a protective feeling towards her? We don't know. We don't know. This film, as we said, began shooting on the 19th of November, 1956. And as far as I can make out, only two days later, on the 21st, Christopher Lee's creature was introduced to the press. Oh, yes. Which indicates that they had to get the makeup together much quicker than the makeup designer Phil Leakey found absolutely congenial. Well, it was done in a terrible hurry, the makeup, wasn't it? Apparently. Yeah. This is a very, very nasty scene, literally picking shards of glass out of the brain. Yes. Um, but um, today's cinema reported on this press reception uh, under the heading Gory Glory. And they said, to Leslie Fruin goes the credit of staging one of the most novel receptions of the year. I accepted Hammer Productions' Come If You Dare invitation, and within the dank walls of a weird Thameside cellar at Brooks Wharf, I drank dragon's blood and met the new Frankenstein monster who made a thoroughly frightening debut by emerging from a cellar door with the unfortunate Hazel Court draped in his huge arms. <laughs> 
So while cauldrons frothed and bubbled in the background and appropriately sombre waiters lavished the guests with gory refreshments, exclusives The Curse of Frankenstein was well and truly launched. Yes, and apparently had the 200 guests reaching for their smelling salts. Sorry, when Lee burst in, yes, in full makeup <coughs> already. We've um, just seen a view of the exterior of the main house at Bray uh, Studios. The house absolutely. is called Down Place. Yes. In this that... case, I believe, augmented by uh, another of Les Bowie's matte paintings. Yes. And here we're, we're about to see a fantastic, um, some, some, some fantastic views of the laboratory itself. Again, making such capital out of these beautiful colours of the yes. liquids in the beakers. And, of course, uh, the Heath Robinson-style electrical equipment with the pulsing red. Well, as you mentioned earlier on, actually, when we're about to see a, a, working, a working electrostatic generator, yes. which is uh, operated by Hammer's chief electrician, Jack Curtis. Ah. And uh, the large contra-rotating discs... Uh, distinguish it as, as you said, a Wimshurst machine, yes. which was named after its British inventor, James Wimshurst, mm. uh, who, unfortunately, for the continuity of this film, um, or for the historical accuracy of this film, I should say, was uh, Wimshurst didn't, in fact, develop the machine uh, until 1880, ah. which is around 30 years after this story set. Well, I've read that this particular version of the Frankenstein story is set in the 1860s. I must say there's no indication on screen as to precisely when it's set. And to be honest, the costumes look a bit earlier than that to me. Well, it's set 100 years ago, isn't it? In years. a mountain village in Switzerland, according to the prologue. So yes. I guess we can assume it's the 1850s. But 1850s. anyway, it doesn't. I mean, yeah, sure. you know, we're okay. not going to let a little thing like historical accuracy get in the way. Oh, no, of our absolutely. Of this I'm just trying to place it in terms of the costumes, which are certainly not the kind of 1890s costumes that we'll see in some of the later Frankenstein. Yes, but of course the continuity in the whole series. There is a sort of loose continuity to the Frankenstein films, isn't there? A lot of which is provided by Fisher and Cushing, to be honest. I think Rather so. Rather than the script writers. I think the so, The mere fact yes. that they are such dominant features of these films. Yes. Anyway, the, the laboratory set, despite the historical inaccuracies, is fantastic, but... Maybe not the best one. I think my favourite laboratory set is probably Evil of Frankenstein. Do you have a favourite? <laughs> a favourite laboratory? Well, um, I remember the um, Robert Robinson, the uh, TV and radio pundit, uh, once described um, Frankenstein's laboratory and Frankenstein Created Woman as being composed of what looks like jam-making equipment, <laughs> which was one of which was one of the most one of the most contemptuous references to Hammer's production design. Uh, I've ever read. And he said that at the time in his review. Um, but it's interesting that that film did come directly after The Evil of Frankenstein when they had made a big effort to have something akin to the old Universal-style laboratory. Yes, yes. Big, and a, big, and loads yes. of flashing lights yes. and all the, all the malarkey you could, you could And, of course, for. The Evil of Frankenstein, which is the film that I think has the most impressive laboratory set, is the one that was actually made for Universal. And is the most Universal-esque. Yes. And also not very good, but that's another... That's another Maybe not the best, question. no. Maybe not the best. Frankenstein has been forced to appeal to Kremper for help because the machinery is designed for use by two people, which sets up one of the most interesting aspects of this version of the Frankenstein story, the fact that Frankenstein does not actually pull the switch, as it were. Ah, yes, it's an act of God, act isn't of it? God, that actually brings the creature to life. Yes, that's right. It actually, a, a lightning strike activates the machinery, 
So oddly enough, this Faustian character who's defying God um, actually has to accept uh, God's intervention, as it were, mm. in his great experiment, in the it's, realization it's of his first It's one of several ironies, I think, surrounding, um, yes. uh, surrounding Frankenstein's ambitions in this film. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we are about to see what I would say. Here's the act of God. There it is. Yeah, there we go. Oh, it's off we go. And as soon we we then there's a very interesting track round the laboratory from the Wimshurst machine, past the beakers, past the red fire bucket, which has become an iconic <laughs> hammer feature, well, and yes. then to what is the equivalent of Karloff's hand twitching yes. slightly? We have Christopher Lee's chest heaving. Yes, uh, and a crash of thunder over that shot of the heaving chest and from the heaving chest Fisher in quite a gaudy touch for him because he was a very restrained director in many ways well, look, what he's, look what he's doing here yeah, blood filling red dressing the frame car. with red i.e. to indicate that only evil only blood yes. will come yes. of this and he will introduce touches of red to some later scenes as well yes. which we'll discuss absolutely. later absolutely what I think Fisher is doing here in a rather protracted build-up to the final appearance of the creature, 45 minutes in, is, I mean, he's ratcheting up suspense really quite effectively, I think. Oh, of course, I mean, it's almost unbearable. While these two are arguing upstairs... We know... The tank is, is emptying downstairs. The level downstairs. is going down. Yes, we and the creature's chest is heaving. Yes. The Wimsurst generator is what spinning away. What is the result going to be? Well, indeed. And, here it is. And what is the thing going to look like? Yes. And here is really the iconic, in-your-face, literally in-your-face beginning of Hammer Horror. And here is the tracking shot. This astounding, rattling tracking shot. As the hand comes up and... The face is revealed. In goes the camera, very insecurely. Yes. I, when I first saw this film, that upset me greatly just the movement of that tracking shot and then well, this, this is because it's this is because it's undercranked isn't it i think undercranked exactly yes. it it gives a very unnatural yes. disturbing unnerving effect to it and so we see the first we see the creature for the first time and its initial instinct is to kill its creator well you know old school film critics like dennis gifford and leslie hallowell have castigated this film and particularly Lee's performance for the fact that the creature is just a psychopath and for that very reason they, 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 they hated this film because its first instinct was to kill Frankenstein frankly these guys they're so in love with the old Universal films no reason why you shouldn't be but so in love they were blinded to the subtleties that were going on here because if you watch that scene you've got two great actors doing fantastic stuff Cushing yes simultaneously elated and revolted but in Lee's eyes you see the flickering consciousness of Bernstein and he immediately recognizes Frankenstein as the man who killed him so of course, of course. he tries to kill him what else would he do yes and, uh, and of on top of which he is obviously a psychopath to some degree because he's got bits of glass in his head <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you know I feel that those old school guys you know God bless them, they're both gone, but Leslie Hallowell and Dennis Gifford and co, just, they should have watched the film more carefully. I think so. Well, here we see, here we see Christopher Lee. Here we see his face, clearly, for the yes, first time, yes. covered in lumps of mortician's wax and so on. I think this is probably a good point 
to talk about the contribution to this film made by Phil Leakey. Absolutely. Who created the, the makeup under careful instructions from Tony Hines to avoid anything that resembled to the, the block-headed, bolt-necked monster that had appeared in the Universal films. And, and again, I, because people are so enamoured, still, of course, by, I mean, the Jack Pierce design for Karloff is a design classic, a kind of deco design classic. Indeed. Because of that, the achievement of Leakey in this film has been downgraded, I think, terribly. Yes. For decades. I think it's, it's such a supremely gruesome makeup. Mm. And he didn't have very much time to do it either. I mean, Christopher Lee remembers that I think there were three various, there were three tests. Yes. I think. And, um, and because time was so short, Leakey even experimented, I believe, on members of the crew as well. <laughs> Actually, you know, blobbing bits of wax on their faces. Well, apparently, among the designs that were tried out on Lee was one that looked a bit like the Elephant Man, as Lee put yes, it. Yes, that's Another, right. a kind of pig-faced character, as if he was from the island of Dr. Moreau. Yes. But all these experiments were undertaken while Lee and Leakey sat in the makeup room listening to the Olympic Games coverage on the radio. Yes, yes. In fact, there are some fantastic publicity shots of are, Lee yes. in makeup yeah. with a radio on his lap, aren't there? Yeah. These woodland scenes were shot um, in the area between Bray Studios and Oakley Court which ah, is yes, the large yes. gothic house down the road. And again, when, when, we, look these, when, we, when we look at these scenes, they, they, do, they do bring to mind Universal Frankenstein, don't they? Yes, I mean, here there's a blind character who reminds you of O.P. Heggie in Bride of Frankenstein. Indeed. And, of course, there's a little boy who reminds you of Marilyn. Um, do you know, I've forgotten the woman's name in the original Frankenstein. Anyway, she played Little Maria uh, and, of course, was famously drowned. And now look at look at the red berries the red on the berries. corner of that screen. Those berries were were painted red, especially. Yes. Uh, Again, as a warning, as a sort of signal. Yes. Of danger. Under instructions from Terence Fisher. Yes. Um, but this is a universal type scene. But again, the blind man and the creature do not form a happy, harmonious relationship as they do in Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> Quite the reverse. This is a hammer film. It's yes. a gloves-off kind of film. What happens? The blind man is killed very rapidly. He is. And in Sangster's original script, the boy was killed as well. But again, the British Board of Film Censors stepped in and said no. They said there should not be too much brutality in the attacks by the creature on Victor and the old man. The well, shot of the old man's body should not be too horrible, and the shot of a little boy's body should be omitted altogether. Well, it was, and it's very effective. By implication, we assume the boy is killed anyway. We've just had some shots there of the makeup in broad daylight, as it were, and you can see quite clearly where the makeup ends on Lee's neck. You can, yes. Now, is that a mistake? Or maybe that's where or the head is, was sewn on. Or is that to indicate that the head has literally been jammed onto the yes. neck? <laughs> onto yes. a, on, and the neck, for whatever reason, isn't as pickled in formaldehyde as the, <laughs> yes. as the rest. I, I have a suspicion that the coat the creature is wearing here is the same coat that the highwoman was hanged in. I'm sure it is. Uh, which is a nice touch, I It think. is, yes. Very yes. Nice it becomes touch. quite grubby later in the film, doesn't it? And, and this little tiny, terrible misunderstanding between him and the blind man is, is beautifully staged, and the way he has those, that puppet-like motion of his yes. hands. As critics yes. pointed out at the time, he was renamed the creature, the creature being creature indicating, rather than monster, that he's more a puppet subject yes. to another man's will. Yes. And Lee, again, because of 
the Karloff precedent, Lee's performance, never mind Leaky's makeup, Lee's performance has been downgraded for decades. And what a fantastic, what a fantastic performance, performance it is. Yes. He plays the creature as a kind yes. of brain-damaged child yes. struggling to coordinate. Yes. In a way that, dare I say, subsequent actors didn't quite get, did they? Just played the thing as a lumbering monster with arms outstretched. Well, I'm afraid, yeah. Yeah, I'm afraid that's true. I'd like to talk about the colours in this scene. I've got a, okay, a quote ahead. here from Terence Fisher. We've mentioned the, um, the, the berries that we saw earlier. Mm. Um, Terence Fisher said, I can remember painting the leaves or twigs red because I wanted in the foreground a suggestion of red. If people were conscious of it, I don't know. The leaves red indicated danger and blood as the little boy went away and disappeared. And you were left there staring at that little foreground of foliage with blotches of red on it. Yeah. And well, we are, of course, left to imagine what the creature does to the boy. Well. Although I think we can guess. Because we see his little satchel yes. discarded there. Yes, there it is. Here's another iconic moment in Hammer Horror. Again, showing that there was to be no economy with the Kensington gore <laughs> yes. in these films. The monster lurches into view. And already you're feeling sorry for this creature. Kremper subsequently describes it as an animal. Yes. And that is very much how it comes across. And here it's being shot down like, well, this like an animal a, that needs to be put out of its misery. It was a very difficult scene for Lee, this, wasn't it? Because, um, as we can see, as Frankenstein congratulates Kremper on being a good shot, doesn't he? Or good <laughs> with a gun. But this was excruciatingly painful for Lee. He described it as being like having a red-hot poker thrust in his eye, didn't he? Well, nobody had warned him that the Kensington Corps would go... <laughs> directly into his mm. eye. It was very simply achieved. He just had the gore in his hand yes. and slapped his hand up to his face. But it of course, was already wearing contact lenses. Yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. It was the first of several... Well, it wasn't exactly an injury, I suppose, but it was the first of several <laughs> discomforting moments that Hammer were to bring in. Well, even worse was to come on the mummy, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Now, the rustling leaves that we can see in the background, these, oh, these, yes. these indicate, I believe, anyway, these indicate the presence of the supernatural and become something of a motif in Fisher's work, don't they? Oh, Fisher like nothing better than autumnal leaves swirling about. I think that reaches its apotheosis in the Gorgon. Yes. But in fact, you can see it in all his films. Uh, yes. there, there are, when Dracula visits Lucy, Yes. There are autumn leaves swirling. Uh, and even in, even in the two faces of Dr. Jekyll, for the scenes shot in the courtyard, I mean, Fisher just uh, drops leaves into view right. as if they're falling from a nearby tree. Absolutely. It's, it's another indication, that and the painted berries, it's another indication that these films do contain something that contemporary critics ex very explicitly said they did not contain, which was any element of poetry or even thought having gone into them. There's Oakley Court. It's a silhouette of Oakley Court, which, yeah. as we mentioned earlier, is the Gothic house down the road from Bray Studios. Anthony Hines has been quoted as saying that his definition of a location on a Hammer Horror was, was Oakley Court. Going any further was out of the question. <laughs> well, it was literally the next <laughs> house, wasn't it? The house was built in 1859 yeah. and um, turns up in numerous Hammer films. And is now a luxury... Hotel. Now, a very expensive hotel. A very expensive luxury yeah. hotel, yeah. Just another word or two about the makeup. Philip Leakey himself commented on the makeup back in 1987. He actually said it was all such a mad rush with no proper preparation, no understanding from the producers of what the job entailed, and none of the materials to make up the parts to stick to poor old C. Lee's face. Bit of a cock up, in fact, as far as I was concerned. That's what he said. The one thing. Leakey was never able to do was to actually make up prosthetic parts that could be just applied 
to Lee. Every day he had to go through the the process of attaching the but, stuff directly to Lee's face. It must have been a very painful process. But this is also partly why it's so successful, because it's not a mask, is it? it uh, well, exactly. And, uh, uh, you know, we're just stacking up the iconic shots here at this point, aren't we? I mean, we're about, oh, about, yes, we're about to yes. have another one. Um, I mean, beautiful, just smoothly tracked mm. through, and oh my God. He's gone and dug it up. Creatures hanging on a hook, um, which I believe is, again, one of the very few things that also featured in Sabotsky's script that was retained for this film. Am I right? I the, think so, the yes. The creature was I hanging so. from a hook. Hanging from a hook, yes. But one of the interesting things about the makeup is how effective it is. It is so gruesome, it's frequently been referred to as looking like a road accident, yes. etc. But Derek Granger in the Financial Times in May 1957 had this to say, by the time the bits and pieces of the creature are finally assembled, the thing emerges from its zinc bath, looking rather like an animated version of one of Mr. Francis Bacon's more unnerving figure studies. <laughs> it does rather. Now, that is extraordinary, because Francis Bacon would again and again be referred to, Francis Bacon, famous for his screaming pontiff pictures, uh, as body horror became more and more sophisticated in the ensuing decades, Francis Bacon would be referred to again and again, particularly with films like John Carpenter's The Thing, vis-a-vis -vis distortions of the human body. I sometimes wonder if Francis Bacon ever went to see any of these oh. horror films when, where he was constantly yes. invoked. I think that that must be the first time that a horror movie and Francis Bacon were sort of yoked together. Yes. And um, modern art, the, the sort of grotesquery of modern art had already been invoked vis-a-vis -vis Hammer Horror with when David Sylvester compared Richard Wordsworth in The Quatermass Experiment to Graham Sutherland's Thornhead paintings. Oh, yes. Um, so at this very early stage, Hammer Horror were being mentioned in the same breath as modern art, while at the same time they were being decried as ghastly, gruesome rubbish that Britain should be ashamed of. So it's well, a strange, strange artless, schism. Artless rubbish, in artless fact. Artless rubbish, and artless yet some rubbish, critics yes. were invoking... Indeed, yes. Modern art. Too. Yeah, this is the scene. Uh, this is the scene where Justine reveals that yes. she is pregnant. Yes. And uh, how ironic the BBFC can that be? struck again. Oh, did struck they? again by saying the rather gross dialogue about Justine's pregnancy is particularly offensive <laughs> in the context of this story, and should be toned down. But it, uh, the the irony underlying this scene, as you just hinted, is that by making his mistress pregnant, Frankenstein has in fact just played his part in creating a new life. But he he's not interested. He's not interested, and in fact he's going to get his artificial child to abort yes. that new life. Poor and, Justine. And the mother at the same time. And of course, Cushing plays that scene in a beautifully restrained, melodramatic mode when Justine is saying, I'm going to get proof, I'm going to get proof against you. And he kind of uh, sort of says, oh, go ahead and get proof. So, you know, why not go ahead and get proof? Because he's already thinking if she goes to and tries to get proof. Oh, yes. And here is Justine on the way to get some proof. I think Justine's backlit nightdress is a, a landmark moment in the history of Hammer Horror, or, or should I say Hammer Glamour. Uh, yes. The, the nightdress, as, as we mentioned, was designed by Molly Arbuthnot, and I think the understated eroticism here was uh, a, a key element of Hammer Horror. It was to become less understated. Less understated. Years, well, to, to, to the detriment of Hammer Horror, I think, in later years. But, um, but Terence Fisher, although he claimed he was just due another film from Exclusive, 
Nonsense. under his contract. Uh, this wasn't, in fact, true. I mean, he was, being, he was being modest, I think. He was, in fact, specially selected by Tony Hines because Hines felt he could deliver. He could uh, deliver on screen this understated eroticism. Hines said, I knew that Terry Fisher would at least understand what sort of films I wanted the Hammer Horror shows to be. I wanted them to be rich-looking, slow, deliberately paced, bursting with unstated sex, but with nothing overt, no nudity, no dolly girls. Ah. Well, he also pointed out, Heinz pointed out, that he and Jack Asher and Fisher and all the architects of Hammer Horror were familiar with the Gothic tradition. And in fact, he specifically said, it must be something English that we both had that sort of knack. And he went on to say, I, I, I understand that James Whale was also English. Yes. Um, so obviously, was Boris Karloff and Colin Clyde. Karloff, of course. And so he was very aware of the specifically British tradition of uh, Gothic horror. Well, we invented this stuff, didn't we? We did. It was often, you know, the, sometimes taken from German models and very frequently set in Germany and places <laughs> yes. like that. But nevertheless, yes, all this stuff originated in Britain. And I think who was it who said the. Um that the repressed have the worst nightmares. That's right, absolutely. And this was the return of the repressed because, of course, the British for so long had swept this stuff under the carpet, yes. particularly where cinema was concerned. And it's very interesting that Heinz was so acutely conscious that he was reviving something specifically British and bringing it back home. Yes, yes. Because previously it had been the preserve of Germany and Hollywood. Here's a beautiful suspense sequence oh, james, Bernard's, james bernard's strings going wild a classic yes. image of a clutching hand which is as old a horror image it looks like nosferatu get. there doesn't yes it? and she turns and we see the monster in a worse state than before <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> if, if that's feasible <clears throat> and sangster's masterstroke in the script the fact that cushing oh cushing i say cushing frankenstein has orchestrated all this and Fisher cuts to one of the most obscene shots in any Hammer film. Oh, yes. Where self-satisfied pleasure. Frankenstein is almost erotically pleased with yes. himself having killed this girl. Now, this is, this is a very famous scene, and I think one of the most uh, famous lines of dialogue in all of Hammer Horror, I think, is... Pass the marmalade, my dear, yes. Pass the marmalade, will you? Which, yes. incidentally, was singled out in almost every review at the time. Was it really? Yes, the, 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 the legend of Pass the Marmalade started straight away. All the reviewers picked up on it because it is so beautifully placed. Possibly the most ghastly uh, moment of horror and, uh, you know, possibly... The, the kind of quasi under, unstated rape horror which is common to a, a lot of horror stories because after all we don't know what the creature does to Justine and it's immediately followed by Pass the Marmalade, my dear, yes. which really sums up the kind of gallows humour yes. that was discreetly inserted into these films. The scene that we're looking at here could be could have come from one of the Gainsborough films and I, I think that yes. over the years the Hammer Horrors have been described uh, incorrectly, I feel, as, as remakes of, of the pre-war universal horror films. Yes, if but I see a book that describes Hammer films as remakes, I just chuck the book out straight indeed. away. But, I, mean, but <laughs> I, I think the Hammer films are just as much, if not more, to, to, to the, the Gainsborough, Gainsborough bodice rippers, rippers yes. of the 40s. As well, we've already discussed that so many of the personnel were involved. Here's a wedding party with exactly four couples. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy who's just exited there, I look very like John Harvey, an actor who was a friend of Anthony Hines. Oh, yes, one of his favourites, uh, isn't he? But 
just being an extra here, but it's... Um, I may be wrong, it may not be John Harvey, but he turned up in proper roles in Further Hand. Well, he was, he'd just been in Ex the Unknown, hadn't he? He had just been in Ex the Unknown. Uh, but here's a wedding party where the guests are all leaving, so they've covered themselves that way, but there are exactly four couples. And <laughs> here we have the Burgomaster and his wife indulging in a little bit of, uh, of comic relief, I guess you'd call it, which um, dropped into the film not awfully artfully i have to say well, well fisher was fond of, of ex accentuating the light relief in his horror films wasn't he although it was always it was always I isolated think, it was always isolated to particular scenes and characters yes. and never it never yes. compromised the overall credibility of the film did it no no uh, but that particular one does sort of sit there for me rather oddly mm. but i think hammer were ahead of their time i mean the james bond films in the 1960s were able to get away with so much of the violence because yes. Yes. Bond would often crack a joke immediately afterwards. That's right, that's right. Talking of the Gainsborough influence, by the way, by the, way um, the Times Educational Supplement said about this film, <clears throat> it actually said that um, a late arrival might think he had strayed into a new version of Pride and Prejudice. Ah. But not for long. Not for long, <laughs> no. But that, that's an indication of just how beautifully rendered the film was. And Hazel Court is now mm. already in, in, the, in her final... Mm. Costume, or rather, her final costume for mm. the flashback action. I mean, it was, is, it, was, um, it was beautifully rendered, but I think it was shot under slightly arduous conditions. I mean, Bray Studios was obviously not adequately heated. This film was shot in the winter of 1956. Right. And you can and see it's, their breath. It's so cold, you could see Hazel's yeah. breath in the, in the yes, scene we've just, right. we've just looked at. That's right. Kremper returns, and. Uh, Yes, this is this was probably the, the masterpiece of decolletage in this particular film. Oh, yeah. we, we can't underestimate the importance of that, as salacious though it may seem, because it did uh, it did literally knock people's eyes out at the time because <laughs> this this was another reminder of the fact that the Wicked Lady, a Gainsborough film of 1945, had yes. to be re-edited for American audiences because of Margaret Lockwood's and Patricia Rock's bosoms were just too visible. And here, Hazel Court's in, in the same ballpark, really. Um, and uh, it was one of the features that made people really sit up and take notice of these films. That, of course, and the gore. Mm. And as we said earlier, when the dresses came off in the 1970s, I think it compromised yeah, the films. A bit, of, a bit of interest was lost. Here's a lovely touch. He's feeding the monster, the creature, some ghastly kind of mash, and he's seasoning it for him. <laughs> yes. And also well, tasting it's his baby, it. Isn't taste, it? Taste, tasting the food yeah. for him yeah. in advance. Um, we're going to get probably Lee's best scene in this film is, um, is on its way. The brief for whoever was to play the creature was a very tall, I understand, was a very tall actor who was skilled in movement and mime, hmm. obviously, because he was to have no dialogue. And uh, Lee had the same agent at the time as Cushing. John Redway. John Redway. I don't know whether it was a kind of package deal. If you want Cushing, you've got to have Lee. I'm sure it wasn't. But I'm sure Redway would have said, we have a very tall actor. Yes. Um, one of the reasons I think that the makeup is so effective is because it is put on to a handsome man. Ah, OK. One of the tragedies of the creature is that he's obviously... A handsome specimen, under, under the under the hideous accretion of scar tissue, um, and I I think that makes him a, the sort of noble savage quality comes out just that bit more strongly as a result. And By because the way, it's not a mask, Lee is able to act through it as he well. Is, absolutely, absolutely. 
Um, but that little moment there when the creature just looked ashamed and kind of moved away. Mm. Again, is that a reminiscence of Professor Bernstein? Because Professor Possibly, Bernstein yes. previously met Kremper Possibly. when Kremper was saying, yes. oh, I'm so, you know, yes. so, it's such an honour to meet you. And now look at him. Yes. I mean, it nearly wasn't Christopher Lee. It was nearly Bernard Breslau, who became quite well known for uh, the army game and the carry-on films. But at that point was actually a hammer contract artist. That's right. Well, and was, and, a, yeah, and was an inch, an inch so taller different. than Christopher Lee. Was he? Well, with no disrespect to Bernard Breslau, I think the fact that Christopher Lee was such a good-looking man was, was, is, is one of the features which bizarrely makes such an ugly character work so well. Um, a less good-looking man like Bernard Breslau just wouldn't have had the same delicacy, I think. And the delicacy of his acting here... Yes when he's literally like a dog being told to sit down and can't quite coordinate even the business of sitting down. Um, I mean, look at this. Oh, God. Well, this, this really is the, the, the creature at its most pitiful. Yes. Uh, the, uh, the BBFC cuts to Jimmy Sankster's script indicate that the Baron's treatment of the creature could actually have been even worse. It was originally going to appear with a blood-stained bandage around its head oh, yeah. and there was uh, as a reference to the baron having cut its vocal cords because it made so much noise during the operation to revive it well i have to say that is a gesture back to the kind of motivating force behind all the mad scientists in horror films of the 40s they were a kind of reflection of nazi eugenics pioneers if we can call them pioneers uh, and they were really flirting with something very unpleasant and in fact some of the original critiques of the hammer films did make reference to concentration camps and things oh yes. as regards why are we expected to watch this stuff as if it's enjoyable yes. and um, raising big moral questions mm. as to why audiences went to these films well in fact one of the reviews of frankenstein and the monster from hell that i remember reading actually referred to the fact that uh, frankenstein's transformation into a nazi was now complete well, oh, in Monster from Hell? Yes. Yes. Is also his transformation into a sad old <laughs> maniac, basically. Oh, that's right. Uh, with nowhere to go yes. other than an asylum. I mean, we, we are indebted, uh, I should point out, to Wayne Kinsey's book, Hammer Films, The Brace Studio Years, for reproducing so much of the British Board of Film Censors reports mm. on these films. And um, one of the readers at the BBFC, Audrey Field, when she read Sangster's script, described it as being infinitely more disgusting than the first script, i.e. the Milton Sabotsky one. Yes. This is, in fact, really evil, she said. A lip-smacking relish for mutilated corpses, repulsive dismembered hands and eyeballs remo removed from the head alternates with gratuitous examples of sadism and lust. Mm. Uh, Frank Crofts at the BBFC said it was a monstrous script, ludicrously written with a complete disrespect for history. It seems to me that a film that is even somewhat watered down from this script might give adults nightmares. People who go to a Frankenstein film expect horror, but a horror based on a fairly well-known legend, and not this sort of stuff. And uh, finally, a reader called SWH, this is my favourite, yeah. uh, at the BBFC, said on the 16th of October 1956, This is a loathsome story, and I regret that it should come from a British team. We have had some horrors from America, but none in my experience without some having humour or light interlude. The writer yeah. of this script seems to think that the X category is a depository for sewage. Sewage, yes. Well, the, the sort of moral outcry was, was quite real and quite sustained initially, until, of course, Hammer were really overtaken in the gruesomeness stakes so rapidly that these moral quibbles began to seem comical really only within a few years but R.D. Smith came up with the most famous review of this film in the Tribune 
He headlined it. For all lovers of the cinema, only two words describe this film. Depressing. Degrading. He said that this latest excursion into the horrors of Mary Shelley's classic tale is the most revolting exhibition I can remember seeing on the screen. He commented on the whole history of horror, from Grongignol to Jacobean bloodbaths, and said this stuff needs an analyst rather than a critic. And he finally said the film has an X certificate and its producer, Anthony Hines, has neglected no sales trick that may bring in the money from, a, from the pathetic public he is aiming at. But if he has correctly assessed the effect of what he is doing, I'm inclined to think this marks the end of the thriller film proper. The logical development of this kind of thing is a peep show of freaks interspersed with visits to a torture chamber. It is a depressing and degrading thought for anyone who loves the cinema. These, these moral uh, arguments are rehearsed to this day vis-a-vis -vis things like torture porn. I mean, you read a review like that and it sounds like a review of a torture porn film. It indeed. just shows how far we have come. This is a mild, <laughs> mild film by modern well, standards. Indeed. Now, in, in this scene, Kremper says he's going to the village to get help in defeating the monster. Now, traditionally, this ah, would have been the yes. point in the film where hordes of angry villagers descend on Frankenstein's castle with flaming torches. <laughs> and uh, Jimmy Sangster remembered. Um, Tony Hines told me to write the script for Frankenstein. I asked him, how much are you going to spend on this picture? I was a production manager at the time, so I knew about budgets, and I did tailor it to a certain extent to Hammer's financial restrictions. In every Frankenstein film, there's always peasants storming the castle at the end to burn it down. Now, Tony Hines said, Jimmy, you can hear the peasants, you can see the torchlight on the trees, but you can't see the peasants. We can't <laughs> afford it, so you have to be a bit imaginative. I mean, yeah. you know, we don't even hear them, do yeah, we? Yeah, absolutely. Think? Well, I mean, Sangster did the same thing with Dracula. He had to take really quite epic and sprawling narratives and sort of boil them down to the pint pot of Bray Studios. I mean, after all, the original Frankenstein story uh, has a climax in the Arctic. <laughs> yes, well, that was out uh, of the question. Apocalyptic obviously. ending, and, you know, yes. this wasn't going to happen here. Instead, you have a quite conventional but very well-constructed uh, and realised ending here where, effectively, we've replayed the scene with Justine. We've even had the same blood-curdling strings from James Bernard's score because this time it's Elizabeth who's gone into the laboratory. And here we have a moment where the audience has to watch very carefully vis-a-vis -vis the ending scene where Frankenstein is about to be guillotined, because you notice there, Elizabeth never sees the creature. Ah, yes, of course, this becomes significant at the end of the film, doesn't yes. it? Yes, people think she sees it because she shares the frame with yes. it. Yes. But in fact, she turns as it comes out behind her. Yes. She gets shot. Yes. So does the creature. The creature also gets shot, yes. I noticed recently. But she never sees it. Which is very important. Perhaps they should have made that more clear, actually. Yes. It's possible. I must admit, I hadn't that. noticed that, so you just she, mentioned it. She never sees the creature. Now, the, the death, the impending death of the creature, was a scene that the BBFC were especially worried about. Yes. Um, as they said, the death of the creature, half of its face blown away by a bullet, it's then hit by a lamp and catches fire, it then falls into the acid, which is about to do, yes. and disintegrates in agony. This scene will not pass, they said. It should not fall into the acid while it's alive. The shot of its face half blown away is unlikely to pass, and there should be no more than a flash of it catching fire. Now, that was stuntman Captain Jock that Easton. That was Jock Easton, yes. Who, who doubled did some very nice Christopher Lee-esque oh, uh, contortions. Yes, and the scene yes. we've just seen was the last scene to be shot, and they began filming it on New Year's Day 1957, and Easton was apparently hung over following a party <laughs> oh, from the perfect. night before. And if that wasn't bad enough, Hammer's cameras failed. 
Not only their film cameras, but their John J. Stills camera failed during that scene as well. So they had to do it all over again. And this was the final scene shot for the film. And now we return to the Baron's confession in his prison cell, which begs the question, if the Baron was hoping for a reprieve from the priest, yes. why has he just revealed that he murdered Professor Bernstein? He's, uh, he's on trial. He's, he's been condemned for murdering Justine, yes. hasn't he? But, I right, put but he's to, tried to blame the monster. I put this to Jimmy Sangster. Oh, what did he say? Uh, I said, uh, you do realise that he actually just comes out with it and says, I killed Professor Bernstein, effectively. And Sangster just looked at me in that very Sangster-esque, slightly jaded man-of-the-world way and said, <laughs> how many times did you have to watch the film to think of that? And I said, oh, I don't know, three or four. I said, well, there you go. These films were made to be seen once. And, you know, well, they, of right, course they were. He's right. They were made to be seen by a 50s audience. And, of course, the film coined it in, didn't it? Oh, it did, it was yes. released it took in May like 57. 70 times its 70 production times cost. I mean, there was a letter from James Carreras to his American partners saying that... Uh, uh, something along the lines of um, dear, dear Elliot, who was his partner in New York, uh, England is sweltering under a heat wave and nothing, in capital letters, nothing is taking any money except the curse of Frankenstein. Absolutely. Absolutely. The flashback structure, actually, as well as containing the absurdity that Cushing uh, Frankenstein confesses to killing Professor Bernstein, uh, some critics have actually, perhaps rather fancifully, because I'm sure Sangster didn't intend anything of the sort, but have actually put this into the unreliable narrator mode of story, yes. in that when Kremper refuses to corroborate his story, maybe he's actually being perfectly sincere because maybe Frankenstein is just a nutter who has just <laughs> imagined the whole damn thing. I mean, of course, Sangster never intended that. But Indeed, uh, one yeah. or two critics have pointed that out, and it's certainly an interesting, uh, interesting mm. way of looking at it. Well, the, the scenes where Frankenstein becomes hysterical here, I wonder if they reminded contemporary audiences of the scenes with uh, Winston Smith in Room 101. But uh, it is very interesting, the... Uh, in his classic book, A Heritage of Horror, David Peary does say that this is the one slip in the whole Frankenstein series. Of course, it's not a slip, literally, because it was the outset of the series. They didn't know what was to come. But it's the one point at which Frankenstein is seen to, to lose control in a hysterical mm. way. Yeah. Uh, and it, it is actually unlike the character as represented elsewhere in the series. So perhaps Cushing decided he didn't want to do any further Winston Smith-isms <laughs> yes. uh, in his, what was yeah. to become his signature role. The, uh, the scenes of, uh, of the prison were shot, by the way, on what Hammer called the ballroom stage, which was actually the ballroom in the main house at Press oh, Studios. Yes. And the French windows by the side we would later see in The Mummy when Christopher Lee, also in bandages, walks yes. right through them. I like the warder on the left of the screen here. <laughs> He's acting beautifully. I You've think. had it coming to you, man. And look at the way he looks up at the guillotine there at yes. the same time that Cushing does. I mean, you know, an unbilled bit part, beautifully played, beautifully played, and a track across to the window. And uh, that was the first gothic hammer horror. Yes, and the the guillotine is raised and the end credits roll. But of course, for Frankenstein and for Hammer, this was just the beginning. That's right. Yeah. Which just leaves me to say thank you, Jonathan, for joining me on this commentary. Thank you, Marcus. I enjoyed it. What a great film it is. It still holds up. We've recorded this commentary in August 2011, almost 55 years after this film was made. And um, I feel sure it's a film that people will still be celebrating for at least another 55 years to come. <laughs>